As we uh, come together to the Word this day, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians and the fourth chapter. Ephesians and the fourth chapter. We've been doing just a tiny bit of work in thinking about church membership. And I mentioned last week that we would talk about that in terms of what the Bible speaks about the local church and the universal church. And so we'll come to that in short order. But before we do, one of the blessings of being involved in a local church, of being uh, plugged in and active in a local church, is that you have other saints who come along in different and varied ways and bless and help in working uh, for the benefit of the body in all kinds of different ways. Um, Back in 2019, Ernie Lindahl uh, gave me, uh, he would give me little uh, tidbits of writings, clippings from newspapers and uh, copies of different things. Um, And he gave me this uh, uh, clipping. I'll read it in its entirety and I'll, I'll give you a clue at the outset. It's not about what it seems to be about. It's not about what it seems to be about. So it starts, here are some reasons why I never shower. Number one, I was forced to shower as a child. Number two, people who shower are hypocrites. They think they are cleaner than everyone else. Number three, there are so many different kinds of soap. I could never decide which one is right. Number four, I used to shower, but it got boring, so I stopped. (laughs) Number five, I shower only on special occasions, like Easter and Christmas. Number six, none of my friends ever shower, right? Follow the crowd. None of my friends shower. Why should I shower? Number seven. I'm still young. When I'm older and have gotten a bit dirtier, I might start showering. Number eight, I really don't have time to shower. Uh, My wife doesn't like when I use that excuse. (laughs) Um, Number nine, the bathroom is never warm enough in the winter or cool enough in the summer. Last, not least, number 10, people who make soap are only after your money, right? Here are some reasons why I never shower. Now, Ernie put in his own writing on that the words, going to church, right? And, and we, we read that and we recognize those are bad reasons, Those are bad reasons. But then sometimes when it comes to our own reasons, we have lots of explanations 
that we think are good reasons, right? Mom, I don't want to shower. My friends are still out playing. Mom, I showered yesterday. We, we easily detect bad reasons in others and less easily detect bad reasons in ourselves. I wonder if sometimes when people go to the word of God and, and, and try to understand what does the word of God teach about the local church or what does the word of God teach about the universal church, they, they uh, read the word of God and they come up with bad reasons for not being a church member, but they don't realize that they're bad reasons. And, and what I would like to do this morning is I would like to just answer uh, three particular questions. Three particular questions that lead us to thinking about uh, church membership, but really we're going to spend most of our time not thinking about church membership, but thinking a little bit about uh, the difference between the local church and the universal church. Because there are those Christians, there are those believers who say, God has by Christ and by my faith in Jesus Christ put me into the universal church. Since I'm in the universal church, I don't need to be a member of the local church. Now, that is a bad reason. I'll just start with cards on the table, okay? That is a bad reason for not being a member of a local church. But how many of those who say that and how many of those who think that realize that it's a bad reason? As we come together to the word today, I had you turn to Ephesians and the fourth chapter. And I think that in Ephesians and the fourth chapter, we have um, something that points to the reality of the universal church. It answers the first question that I like us to think about together. I invite you to think with me together about these three questions. First, does the New Testament teach there is a universal church? Second, does the New Testament teach, teach there are local churches? Third, does the New Testament teach that believers should be members of a local church? So that's the trajectory of questions that I want to bring to the, the scriptures and consider the scriptures with. And hopefully considering those scriptures together will help us in answering all three of those questions correctly, rightly. We'll have the right reasons for the right answers to those questions. The first question, does the New Testament teach there is a universal church? And before we get to the question, I will just uh, put forward uh, a definition of what I mean by universal church. Universal church, as I'm speaking about it now, and this, this wouldn't be the only way you could phrase this, but the universal church is all those who are united with the church through baptism of the Spirit into the body of Christ. All those who are united with the church through baptism of the Spirit into the body of Christ. 
So if someone is a part of the body of Christ, they are a part of the universal church. If somebody has been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, they are a part of the universal church. You'll note that this uh, definition isn't constrained to a time. It isn't all those who are alive right now are a part of the universal church and are um, baptized by the Spirit into the... Uh, I, I'm not going to go into whether baptized by or baptized in. Uh, there's a, there was a prepositional question there, but we're not going to take time for that right, right now. Um, but baptized into the body of Christ. Um, uh, th- it isn't constrained by time. Right? It, it, everyone, if Christ Jesus does not return, if, if the rapture doesn't happen right this moment... Um, and the, the church continues in its existence for another hundred years or thousand years, right? We've gone 2,000 years. It, it might continue on for who knows, uh, God knows how long. But if the church continues uh, into the future and other people become believers in Jesus Christ and thus are baptized by the Spirit in the body of Christ, they who are in the future from our time frame, they would be part of the universal church. Those who are dead and believed in Jesus Christ and were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, they're a part of the universal church. Those who we do not know about, those who we know about, those who we've met, and those who we haven't met, who've been baptized and placed into the body of Christ, they're part of the universal church. Am I tracking at least a little bit for helping us uh, begin to understand that if you are a believer, a true believer, then you're a part of the universal church. If you, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a part of the universal church. Why? Because the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place at the time of trusting in Jesus Christ. At the point of regeneration, we are placed into the body of Christ. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation from sin, if you're trusting him for your eternal hope, he's the one who you're looking to for that gift of eternal life. If that's you, then you are a part of, of the universal church, having been baptized into the body of Christ. Does the New Testament teach that there is a universal church? You'll note that all of these questions are simple in that they have yes and no answers. And the answer, the correct answer, is yes. The New Testament does teach that there is a universal church. We see this as we come to Uh, Ephesians and the fourth chapter. But I would like to not just look to the uh, uh, parts of uh, this section of Paul's writing that uh, help us in understanding the local church, but I'd like, uh, uh, sorry, the universal church, uh, but I'd like to help us to think about the context and to um, understand it in its context. And so back in chapter three and verse eight, Paul is rejoicing that he can be a minister of the gospel. And as he looks forward to serving 
uh, Christ, he rejoices that God has brought, uh, even as he has explained in chapter 2, he rejoices that God has brought uh, to himself uh, people from every family in heaven uh, who derived uh, their, their name from the Father. And so that in Christ um, you may dwell in your uh, hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up in all the, to all the fullness of God. And so uh, Paul is speaking with uh, very much emphasis on the joy of serving Christ and one of the ways in which uh, we are faithful in our service to Christ is in our love for others. He speaks of love repeatedly in this section of scripture. We uh, have love for others. We have love for Christ. You see the uh, uh, love for uh, for others, I think, in being rooted and grounded in love. Verse 17, you see the love for Christ. Uh, verse 19, to know the love of Christ. And that love uh, moves us to act in certain ways in relationship to those around us. And then in the end of chapter 3, he breaks out into exaltation. He breaks out into joy because of what God has done. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now what has Paul just done? He has just given praise to God the Father because of what God the Father has done in bringing together believers, bringing people to Christ. And what's, uh, what's striking as we uh, come closer to the verse that we're going to focus in on is that as you come to that last verse in chapter 3, to the Father be the glory, note this language, in the church and in Christ Jesus. Wow! What did Paul just do? He just put the church and bringing glory to the Father uh, uh, through the church next to bringing glory to the Father through Christ. He says that, that we ought to be those who are living in such a way, believing in such a way, acting in such a way, that we are those who bring glory to God the Father in the church. And that's paralleled with bringing glory to to God the Father in Christ. The fact that the church is, is elevated, is lifted up to the the same level that that, uh, Paul could write that the church would bring glory to God and that Jesus Christ would bring glory to God? Amazing. We, we who are sinners, we who 
in our path of sin, deserve condemnation and judgment. We deserve to be everlastingly separated from God, forever distanced from God. And yet, Paul is able to say that in the church, glory could be given to God the Father. Imagine how clearly we see in Christ glory being given to God the Father. And and the fact that church and Christ would be paralleled there in that statement? Paul has a high view of the church. As he seeks to labor on behalf of his master... He then gives instructions. And in chapter 4, he begins a number of instructions that all begin in uh, the following sections of Ephesians, all the way through chapter um, 6 and verse uh, 9. The uh, beginning sections at, at first, and then in the middle of different of these following sections of paragraphs of Ephesians, if we, can, if we can delineate that uh, section, even though Paul wasn't uh, writing in, in paragraphs as far as we can uh, tell. Paul begins all of these uh, sections and then begins to, to refer to, in, in the sections later, uh, walking in a particular way. Walking in a particular way. So, for example... Ephesians 4 and verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Walk in this particular way. Or chapter 4 and verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Or chapter 5 and verse 8. For you you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And Paul continues this emphasis on walking as those who are faithful to the Lord. He he even says in chapter 5 and verse 2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Our memory verse. Chapter 5 and verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So in this section of Ephesians, Paul is is beginning to put uh, uh, the boots on the ground, as it were. He's beginning to, to show this is how you ought to live. That's the idea of walking. The idea isn't uh, what kind of uh, gait do you have, what kind of, um, uh, what kind of, if, if literally walking, right? Uh, my my grandfather is tall, like I am. My grandfather on my, my father's side. And um, I think that uh, given that he and I are both tall, we, we have a kind of similar stride when we're walking. Okay, that's not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is how you live. And as Paul comes to uh, this section of Ephesians where he's focusing on how you live, he then focuses on 
loving one another and fellowship with one another. Verse number two, um, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. So the manner in which you ought to walk. Showing tolerance for one another in love, the means by which you ought to walk. And you notice that love has come back there again. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And again, another means of walking faithfully, serving your Lord, being faithful to the the things that God has told us to do. We are called with humility, lowliness in understanding ourselves, and gentleness, that's a word for meekness, that's a word for not elevating ourselves, with patience, uh, the word is is a word for, it's, it's very similar to the next phrase, the word is a word for um, not being easily riled, um, not, not uh, being a person who, who uh, is quick to be offended, with patience, and then the way in which we are supposed to walk, showing tolerance for one another in love, being long-suffering would be another way of saying this. Um, not expecting of others uh, more than we expect of ourselves, not expecting of others even exactly what we expect of ourselves, but looking at them with eyes of grace, eyes of love, as Paul says here. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Okay, Paul is is focusing in verses 2 and 3 on the fellowship that we have because of the unity that we have in Christ. And he he makes that clear as he goes to verses 3 and 4. And I think uh, 3 all the way down through 6. Sorry, 4 all the way down through 6. 4, 5, and 6. Paul makes that clear that as you come to this text, if you ask the question, does the New Testament teach that there's a universal church? This text helps you to know that you should answer that with the answer, yes. What language does Paul use to describe this fellowship that's a unity? Uh, why should you be unified in your fellowship? Because... And it's interesting that verse 4 doesn't have a a conjunction starting it. It it seems as though Paul is trying to emphasize this list of ones, this list of uh, singularities. Paul's trying to emphasize it by not beginning the list with a conjunction. We we would probably... um, uh, use the conjunction because if we were if we were putting a conjunction in there that connects the previous text with the verses four and following, why should we preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Answer verse four: There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
You and I should be unified as followers of Jesus Christ because God himself is unified. One God, verse 6. One Lord, that's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 5. One Spirit, verse 4, speaking of the Holy Spirit. God himself is unified, and we who are becoming more and more in in the likeness of the one who has brought us to salvation, more and more being made into the image of Christ, into the image of God, we should be uh, unified. Because God is one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. Amen. It's not just a unified God that's pointed to here, but a unified experience, a unified experience. One body, one spirit, just as you're also called in one hope. All Christians uh, have the experience of hope. They have the experience of looking forward with joy and with expectation. They have the experience, verse 5, of one faith and one baptism, one faith. The the, uh, trust which we put in Jesus Christ, the belief system that we look to in Jesus Christ as he has taught, that faith is a unified faith. All those who truly uh, follow the Lord Jesus Christ are united in one faith. Likewise, an experience, a unified experience of baptism. Now, I'm not going to give a a reason here for thinking that this is a spirit baptism, but I think that in the context as as back in chapter 4 and verse 16, um, uh, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened through uh, with power through his spirit in the inner man. This is something that the spirit is uh, doing. And then um, uh, forward, uh, this is verse uh, back in verse 3. So our immediate context, the unity of the spirit. The spirit is the one who brings this uh, unity. So I think that this uh, uh, baptism is spirit baptism. Uh, baptism into the uh, body of Christ, but uh, even if you, uh, even if you would dispute that with me, that's uh, that which you uh, can do, um, uh, and disagree with me on that particular point. There's still a unified people. Verse four, the first thing that Paul starts out the whole list with is one body by the Spirit. We have a unity and we ought to promote that unity and we ought to seek to encourage that unity. Seeking to encourage that unity, why? Because there's one God. God is unified. Because there's one experience of the Christian life, one experience of the Christian faith. And because... You see a unified people here, one body, that into which the Spirit places us. How do we have a unity? This unity uh, by the Spirit, of the Spirit, in the Spirit, however it's uh, uh, rightly to be understood. This unity that the Spirit uh, works, it's a unity because 
we are unified in one body. Paul is speaking of the universal church here. He he implies that as he goes along because down in verse uh, 11, he talks of the gifts that that were given by grace. um, And he says that uh, some of those gifts are apostles and prophets and evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the, what's our word? Body of Christ. One body and then body of Christ uh, down in, in verse 12. But uh, apart from uh, trying to, to emphasize that this is uh, the universal church, this is speaking of the body of Christ universally, I think that verse 11 implies that same thing because was Paul an apostle of just a local church? Was was Paul just Jerusalem's apostle? Or was Paul just Antioch's apostle? Or, or was Paul, when he was working in Ephesus, was he just the Ephesian apostle? No. These, these gifts that God has given... Uh, God has given uh, in uh, the apostles to the church at large. Okay? One body ought to be understood as the universal church. I think there's another text of scripture and we'll be uh, uh, more briefly there. But turn back to John 10. Turn back to John 10. This is the common understanding of uh, this particular verse Verse 16, Jesus is speaking about uh, himself as the good shepherd. He begins this picture of himself as the good shepherd in verse 11. Um, uh, Note uh, the previous verses, even though they talk about pastors and sheep, are about Jesus being the door, not about Jesus being the shepherd. But verse 11, Jesus starts talking about himself as the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now there are there are wicked shepherds and people who are hired just to do the job and they don't care about the sheep. Verse uh, 13, in fact, they flee because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Verse 14, Jesus reiterates, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Sometimes I uh, forget names, embarrass myself greatly, right? Jesus knows all of his sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, Jesus had been talking in a Jewish context. And so uh, the, the people who are listening, the apostles, um, they could uh, understand uh, those around. They could understand this in a Jewish context. And they could think, well, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And he's coming to bring the flock of the Jews to himself. But 
rightly understood, I think, and this is the common uh, understanding of verse 16, there is another group of people beside the Jews who are a part of the body of Christ, or to use the, the, the image and the metaphor that's being spoken of here, who are part of the flock, who, who are able to look to Jesus and say, he is my good shepherd. And what a beautiful thing to be able to say. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. Jesus, talking to Jews, says, I have other sheep who aren't of Jewish origin. And all of us who trust in Jesus and don't have any drop of Jewish origin that we know, um, we do what? We rejoice. We say, that's me. Now, question. How many of Jesus' sheep look to him as the good shepherd? The answer is obvious, isn't it? All of Jesus' sheep look to him as the good shepherd. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether American or Filipino, all of them look to Jesus as the good shepherd. Whether they're Jews of uh, of Israelite uh, lineage or not. If it's true that all uh, look to uh, Jesus as the good shepherd, then this this uh, speaking of other uh, sheep who come into the fold ought to be understood as the universal church. Okay. Uh, we we at uh, Blaine Baptist, uh, as far as I know, don't have any Jews in our assembly, right? Uh, this verse teaches very clearly that Jesus' flock includes Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, this verse can't be talking about a local church understanding of the church. It has to be talking about the universal church. God is going to put into Christ's body through Jesus, through the Spirit, God is going to put into Christ's body uh, Jews and Gentiles, uh, people living in our day, people who lived a thousand years before us, if Christ doesn't uh, return, people who live a thousand years after us. Does the New Testament teach there is a universal church? Answer, yes. Second question, and I know you're, you're scared. I'm, I'm no longer preaching, you're thinking, I'm no longer preaching according to the clock. I'm now preaching according to the calendar. No, no, I'm not. Uh, this, this will be a lot faster. Uh, does the New Testament teach there are local churches? And I think based on our time together last week, especially, we would, we would uh, obviously say, yes. Uh, there, are, there are examples in Acts of local churches. You go to the book of Acts and the example of the book of Acts, uh, what is a local church? Those baptized or disciples who follow Christ together in a particular geography. There are examples in Acts 
of uh, local churches. You see it in chapter 6 and verse 7 where it's the first time that you have it made really clear. Um, the, the people who've been baptized and added uh, to the assembly, uh, what have they been added to? Well, they've been added to the church of Jerusalem. Uh, Ephesians 6, uh, sorry, <laughs> Acts 6 and verse number 7. The word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Uh, you, you, you start in Acts 2.41 and those who believe are baptized and added. To what are they added? Well, you get to, you get to chapter 6 and verse uh, 7 and it's it's obvious in the context previously, but it's clear in the wording. Here, they're added to the Jerusalem church. Or Ephesians, oh, sorry, <laughs> uh, I'll probably keep on doing this, uh, but Acts, Acts 8 and verse number 2. Uh, there was persecution and so, um, oh, verse 5, sorry. There was persecution and thus uh, those uh, some go out preaching the word, verse 4. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and pro- began proclaiming Christ to them. Uh, he proclaims Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. And then uh, skip down to verse 12 for time's sake. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So what's happening? Believing, baptism, and then as we would call it, added to a local church, church membership. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, even Simon, Simon who, who uh, uh, had been opposed, um, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And, um, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. And so here we have the church in Samaria, chapter 13 and verse uh, 1. I, I won't go to other texts. Uh, you could go to many other texts. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there. Okay? So there was a church in Antioch. Does the Bible teach that there are local churches? You look to the, exa- to the example of the history of the church in Acts, and it's very clear that there are local churches. We could go to other references. We're not going to do that for time sake. Does the New Testament teach? Third question. Uh, we did that pretty fast, didn't we? Uh, does the New Testament teach there's a universal church? Yes. Does the New, New Testament teach that there are local churches? Yes. Does the New Testament teach that believers should become members of a local church? And, and here is how I would uh, define local church membership um, by quoting uh, my teacher, uh, Kevin Bowder. Local church membership, quote, a relationship of mutual accountability and discipline between individual believers and the entire Congregation. Now, if, if, you, if we took time to tear this apart, and I'm only going to take a little bit of time to dissect it here. If we took time to, to, to uh, tear apart that, uh, to look more closely at that definition, uh, what is local church membership? A relationship of mutual accountability and discipline between individual believers and the entire 
congregation. We would note, if we took this apart, that it's a voluntary relationship. It's something that someone chooses to enter into. So, you couldn't have infants uh, become members of a church. Uh, We at Blaine Baptist Church don't baptize infants because the Bible is clear that those who are believers and have chosen to follow Christ are to be uh, baptized. Likewise, with church membership, it's voluntary. Uh, this is a spiritual, uh, a spiritual relationship. This relationship of mutual accountability and discipline, it has to uh, be based in, those, uh, in the lives of those who are regenerated, those who are true followers of Jesus Christ. And I, I think that this is probably the place where we see the uh, most clearly the fact that Uh, The New Testament teaches that believers should become members of a local church by implication. As you think about the language that's used, when you go to those local churches, Paul will sometimes speak of the people in those local churches and he'll speak of them with this word, saints. You go to local churches, and what will you find there? You'll find saints. So, for example, in Romans 15, 26, Paul refers to the saints who are members of the local church in Jerusalem. In Romans 1 and verse 7, Paul refers to the the, uh, members of the local church in Rome, and he refers to them as saints. Believers coming together in church unity. In Ephesians 1 and verse 1, you have the Ephesian saints being looked to. In Philippians 1 and verse 1, you have the the saints in Philippi. They're, they're, They're a part of the church of Philippi, and Paul refers to them as saints. We could likewise uh, understand that church discipline implies, even necessitates, that there's some membership in the church, uh, a local church family. Okay, we we could likewise uh, go to the uh, the model of the New Testament, uh, teaching that an uh, individual congregation, a local church, governs itself. It's not governed by some outside entity, and that implies that the people in the church are members of the church and they're governing themselves. But we're going to look to those ideas not next week and not the week after because next week Jason Parker's with us and the week after uh, the Smiths are with us. But the week after that, we'll, we'll take up those ideas. Does the New Testament teach there's a universal church? Yes. Does the New Testament teach there are local churches? Yes. Does the New Testament teach that believers should become members of a local church? Yes. Consider all of the occasions in Acts where they're, uh, they believe, they're baptized, and they're added to, to the local church. Um, what should we do in response? We, we should stand against our culture that is very 
hands off and laissez-faire. Let's let's not push anyone to be too committed. Let's be non-committal. We we should stand against our culture and we should say commit to Christ. Christ loved his church and died for it. The least you can do is join a church and live for it. Might God help us in doing even that. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you for the great marvel of what you have done in building your church, the universal church, the local church, two different things. The fact that we could be members of a local church, the fact that we can serve you by encouraging others in mutual accountability and discipline. Lord, we rejoice in that. Help us to be faithful, even in contrast to the culture around us that uh, in so many ways desires not to have commitments. Uh, Help us to be committed to you in the ways that you tell us to be committed to you. We pray that you will bless as we go forth doing that. In Christ's name, amen.